Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Ah, here we are. <laughs> um, welcome to Fan Club. My name's Nick. This is Nathaniel Metcalf. <laughs> and you're listening to Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf's Five Star wow. Family Fun Size Fan Club. Um, uh, 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 we had uh, we had a we had a bloody week off, didn't we? We uh, did. So um, so feeling energised, fresh, and absolutely cooking on all cylinders and firing on gas. Um, so, um, what's the first rule of fan club, Nat? Tell your friends. Tell all your friends. Plain and simple. Tell your friends. What's the second Tell rule, Nick? Please, please, especially in these COVID times, tell your friends. It's literally our only, only contact with the outside world, isn't it, Nathaniel? <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. I've been trying to get out. been trying to get out more. That's what I've been a fan of this week. I've been trying to get out and uh, do a bit more, see a bit more of the world, expand my world whilst in lockdown. And I've started going on the little hired Boris bike things and trying to have a bit of a cycle. But I've not done it since I was 10. Genuinely odd. Such an odd feeling to be on a bike. I sort of dream about it now. It's this sort of yeah. odd floaty feeling. Um, so floaty I'm trying to. Floaty. Hmm? Do you say blokey or floaty? Floaty. It feels like you, feel... you are a bit off the ground and a bit kind of, it's slightly dreamlike cycling, I think. Yeah, I mean, you say what you like about Boris, but he has introduced bikes, so <laughs> it did invent so that's bikes. Good. It's not, it's not all evil, um, so <laughs> that's good. Um, I haven't ridden a bike since I passed my cycling proficiency. When was that? Um, oh. When did I get nominated? So, <laughs> um, it was... Uh, that you've done uh, the time. Yeah, it was, uh, it was mm, 18 years before my first nom. Um, now, I, I, I don't know, when did we? So, I must have been like nine, nine or ten when I did my cycling proficiency. I'm the same. It's um, been, I, I haven't ridden a bike, I think, in 30 years, something like that. It's genuinely odd. And you do sort of... I'm so wobbly. I think I think I must look mad on it. Like I must just be going side to side. But I am getting better. I'm definitely getting more and more confident. I've been out this morning. I've been to Leighton in East London. It's not not that far, but like it's it feels like quite an achievement for me at the minute. I'm quite pleased do with that. Do you find your ego is your biggest enemy there? Yeah, I mean because... I do a lot of that because I, I just feel like I'm aware that I look like an idiot or probably look like an idiot. So also if I get a bit if I'm worried there's going to be a bit where I look stupid, I'll just get off and walk with it for a while on the pavement and just pretend that I'm, like, there. And then I sort of go around the corner and get back on it and set off again. Yeah, because everyone's in lockdown at the moment, so it must be rammed on the streets. No, it's sort of all right. I think, I think actually there isn't... I think there's less traffic or... Because it's given me a bit more confidence. It, it feels a bit safer to be on a road now, I think. Unless this right. is it. So I'm kind of, I'm getting used to it. And, uh, 
you know, I'm, I, I sort of quite like the idea of being, yeah, I'm a cyclist. I can go anywhere. And I think I'm always worried about, like, just kind of lots of bits of my life that, you know, if I, if I get used to it, I can start, you know, potentially seeing some friends at a social distance if I can just get a bit further. No, it's, I think that that's brilliant. Yeah. It's all like, it's just I, that. Because, well, I can't drive. And so I've got, like, people that are saying, hey, do you want to meet up for, a, you know, social distance, um, you know, walk in the park? And I'm like, yeah, but which park? Yeah. And they go, well, there's one an hour away from you. And you go, yeah, okay. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get in an Uber. And I yeah. don't want to. And, and I'm, so when I was, so when I, I can't remember, so I was like nine, nine or ten, and uh, we did, um, uh, uh, my sister entered a competition at Thorpe Park, right, and she, uh, we, we went to Thorpe Park for a day, and she just filled in this sort of form and posted it in this, uh, you know, envelope box that they had, and um and then she won a bike. She won like a mountain bike. And so then we had to go to um, Thought Park. They gave us like free tickets to Thought Park. And we went and they presented my sister with this mountain bike. And then she got a photo taken with the Thought Park Rangers and all this other stuff, right? And, uh, and it was sort of like this unisex mountain bike where it didn't have like a full bar across the top. It was sort of like this... And so that was the bike that I learned to ride on. And I got absolutely bullied the fuck out of at school for having a girl's bike, right? right. And, I, and I, you go, it's not a girl's bike. It's a unisex bike, <laughs> which, if anything, made it worse, right? And so I was terrible, I was terrible at cycling because we, we, we grew up in London. Yeah. And so it was only when we moved to St Albans that it was kind of, like, safe to sort of, like, ride around on the roads. Yeah. Uh, and we had a tiny, tiny garden in London, uh, so there was sort of like there was n never anywhere to sort of like do all that. And so I was always, um, I'm quite a timid child. I was quite a timid child, so I was always scared about sort of like hurting myself. And you know, like when um, I've had like I had a, like an ex girlfriend who was really good at skiing, and she said the reason she's good at skiing is because when she was tiny, they just put her on skis and then pushed her down a mountain. And when you're little, you just think that you're indestructible. Yeah. Um, and I never had that upbringing, so I always felt like I was very destructible. Yeah. And um, and we rehearsed, uh, so uh, we did cycling proficiency. I think they split the year in two halves. So the first half would do it, and then the second half would do it. I was in the first half, and I failed that. So they put me in the second half, and I failed that. So then we stopped doing it at my school for that year and it went on to another school so I had to go to another school I think it was a boys school on my unisex bike and do cycling proficiency with them right? so strange kids you've never seen before with strange kids that I've never seen before it was awful I mean it's it's like it's all that self-consciousness that you're feeling but yeah. up to like when you're your most vulnerable um I was a sort of a, um, an overweight kid anyway so like uh, in St Albans which was full of skinny kids and um, yeah so it was just a terrible experience the whole thing anyway I eventually passed my cycling proficiency at this at this alternative school and um, and it was raining and I remember I cycled home from this 
other school and on my way I went past my school and it was about uh, and it was just after the end of the school day and I stopped in and um, my head teacher was there and I was like I passed I passed my cycling proficiency and he was just like that's amazing well done I was like I know I passed I got on my bike and I rode off and uh, my other mate was on his bike and then he came along and we went to see our other mate and it was raining and we went down like uh, this little alleyway and when he went around the corner he left his back wheel overhanging the alleyway because I'd only just passed I sort of like I sort of like swerved but I, I didn't have the dexterity to sort of like put my brakes on you know get the timing right and I smashed into this fence right and it was like this um flat pack I must have told you this before it was this flat pack fence and the entire fence like dominoes just absolutely (laughs) collapsed right and my mate who was on the other bike he had sort of like knocked on our mate who we were visiting's house and he wasn't in but his parents were in and they stood in the doorway and watched me in the rain like crashed my crashed my bike and they said um you better fix that fence so in the rain right this chubby overweight kid with tears mixed with rain all over his face had to rebuild this flat pack fence this garden like not just a segment the entire fence had to re-slot it together in the rain as I was being watched by our mate's parents, who we didn't know that well, they were quite stern. I did it, and then I just I picked my bike up and I pushed it home, I put it in the garage, and I never rode it again. Oh, no. <laughs> it's tragic. It's an okay. awful story. So that's why. Keep it light! <laughs> Keep it light! <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you've never ridden a bike. That's why I've never ridden a bike. I'm haunted by it. Because they say what you should do is you should just get straight back on the bike and ride it. But I was just like, nah, I'm all right. Yeah, I'll walk. That's that's why I'm doing it. I quite like the idea of having a bit more autonomy and a bit being able to get get about a bit more, get a bit further. I think it's a really good thing. But also, um, what we were saying in a week is that if if you're self-conscious, this is the perfect time. Because you just put a mask on, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no one will know it's you. You can just totally get away um, with it, completely in disguise. No, yeah. If anyone asks, did I see you on a bike? Yeah. No. Well, me. What well, have you been a fan well, of? Me. This week? Well, me. Um, I, so, the, so, I mean, I, have, I was just saying to you, I haven't slept in two days. I got like half an hour of sleep the other night, and then um, uh, I got like four hours sleep last night. And it got to about like, um, th- just gone three, and I couldn't work out what to watch because I wanted to put something on. Just to, and then I, I made the mistake of putting on Truly Madly Deeply, <laughs> and I watched that. And I always I remember watching it sort of like around about the time it came out. So I was like, this would be about I don't know. 17 years before I got nominated and um, I just rem- I remember it being in my head like a British version of Ghost right yeah so I remember it kind of like it's a bit like Ghost but without the thriller subplot yeah and I watched it last night it's Ant- I forgot that it was Anthony Minghella alright that makes sense 
oh my god it is such a sad film uh, obviously it's sad but it's so sad yeah i don't think i appreciated that i like i think i appreciate it about the same time as you so i remember it being on tv quite soon after it came out of cinema so i think it's made by the bbc isn't it so it might yes, just bypass so. videos and things so it came out i remember like seeing it on tv when it was still relatively like a new film and just it's obviously just a bit too old for me and i was a bit like it's fine didn't really yeah. have any opinion on it it's it's weird though because it's sort of like um so juliet stevenson is incredible in it and uh alan rickman is amazing um it's so, but it's so beautifully performed it's amazing um but yeah it's kind of like not a classic because obviously <laughs> aside from the fact that he's dead it's not a classic uh the character is dead it's not a classic sort of like romantic movie in that respect because it's um it's sort of like an idealised uh, relationship. Uh, it's sort of like the sort of relationship that you don't really see in films. It's like it's this couple that love each other. And it's really rare to actually just get that. You either mm. get people that are meeting each other uh, and they fall in love, or you have kind of like the end of a relationship. Mm. But it's quite rare to have kind of like a, a film about a couple that have already met each other and they're in love with each other. Yeah. And, um, and it takes them quite for ages either and they're going, we're not bored yeah. of each other and being a bit... Yeah. And, 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 and when I was younger, I sort of like didn't recognise that relationship. Hmm. But, um, but it just reminded me of kind of like relationships that I've been in where, um, where it was just all of the good stuff. And... Um, and yeah, so it's like the first time I've sort of like seen it and been able to relate to like aspects of that. I would say there are like three or four moments in the film that don't ruin it, but you'd go, this film would be a lot better without those bits. I was about to say, is there like a general, is there a bit where they like sing together or something? The I think sing- there be something that's embarrassing about it. The singing isn't so bad. There's a bit where she is sort of like rolling around on the floor and kind of like, um, acting goofy and you kind of like go that's almost fine like like everyone's been in relationships where you're sort of like just being a dickhead for each other Mm. but there's something that's slightly um unauthentic about it and then they start singing and then when they're singing together it's beautiful i think because it's sort of it is sort of flawed because they're both musicians in it as well. Okay. Um, and so it's kind of like it's a thing that they would have done together, you know. So it's kind of like that that rings true. But there's this bit when she's like playing around with these dolls and it's kind of like they're trying to give her business to do. And it's just a sort of like that's a little. So the, the, that would be a bit. And there's the bit when um, they're hopping along the South Bank. Um, Coming back and, I, it's, it's sort of like they, it's the same area that they filmed uh, Four Winds and a Funeral in, you know? It's yeah. that strip just outside the, the old Museum of Moving Image. Mm-hmm. And I think that someone was saying, it might have been you, that you can see the Museum of Moving Image in the background of um, Four Winds and a Funeral. Yeah, that's where they're going. They're going to the cinema to see, like, a, an old movie, I think, he and his oh, brother. The BFI? The BFI. Yeah. yeah. I thought that maybe that, that was a mismemory and it was from uh, Truly Madly Deeply. But, um, yeah, there's a bit when she's on a date with, like, this new guy 
and uh, he makes them hop down the um, south bank and you just like oh, I know what you're trying to do you're trying to make him into sort of like this sort of like quirky wacky individual but it just it's just you just like go, oh god no please not this I think that was a thing wasn't there there was that there is that sort of weird cultural cringe that's often in British movies and that's a good example of it it's when it's like a film like Peter's Friends we've spoken about before that's the whole film but like yeah. that, like anything that has like a bit of it, most of them have little bits that make you go, oh, a little bit cringy or a bit embarrassing. It's meant to show like um, he gives her an escape from this morning that she's in, you know. Mm. Um, and I just you watch it and you go, Ugh. the thing like about Peter's friends is it's kind of like it's it's the sort of film that's sort of like, hey, you know, British people, we're like this, aren't we? Yeah, and then as a British person, you watch it and you go, "No, I don't <laughs> recognise a single thing about this film that is relatable to anything about me." And for the love of God, don't release this. I don't want anyone to think. I don't want anyone to have seen this film and think that that's what I'm like. I think that's I mean? the mistake they made with Peter's friend was to release it. They should yeah. have put it in a big sort of vault <laughs> somewhere and just never let anyone see it. That would have been. Sliding doors as well, where he does uh, uh, Monty Python. Uh, Monty Python. It's like it's just like sliding doors. <laughs> Fucking hell, right? So I mean, I used to have a routine about this, and Richard Herring has, uh, as I think Richard Herring hates it as well. Sliding doors, though. That Monty Python sequence is just absolutely excruciating because it's basically in the middle of a film. We've talked about this, right? In the middle of the film, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is sat at a dinner party uh, and sh- uh, and the scene is meant to be, she's watching John Hanna on the other side of this table and he's so interesting and funny and charming that she falls in love with him. She's got no choice but to fall in love with him. And it's that moment in this romantic comedy where she, where you just like go, well, these two were made for each other. right? And the way they do it is by him recreating the Spanish Inquisition sketch from the from, from Monty Python, and you just like go, well, a the only the only thing that is funny that he is saying is something that is uh, is lifted from someone else, right? And if you've ever been to a dinner party or in a social situation where someone comes up to you and starts quoting their favourite lines <laughs> from Monty Python or Little Britain or anything else, do you know what I mean? If anyone just comes over and starts quoting stuff at you, you just like go, oh my God, this guy is a loser, right? You, do, you, don't, you know, you just think, do the fucking... Right, John Hanna, by all means, finish off your Spanish Inquisition speech, right? Then do the fucking washing up and then fuck off, yeah. all right? You'd just be but in you... real life. As soon as, as soon as John Hanna went to the toilet, everyone else would be, like, looking at each other going, can you believe he did Monty Python? Just embarrassing. Oh, can you believe that? Fuck it, it's coming back. It's coming back. What I'll do is uh, we'll all eat dessert really quickly and leave and then give it 15 and then everyone come back. <laughs> but that's the scene. That's, the, that's meant to be, that's the romantic crux of the whole movie where she yeah. just like goes, oh, there's a better guy out there. And he knows, <laughs> I'll tell you what, he knows all of Monty Python. He knows every single, he knows, he knows the series, he knows the movies, 
yeah. knows the albums, even knows uh, Eric Idle's lines from Splitting Airs, right? He's got it all. He knows, he knows everything. Right? My boyfriend, right? My current boyfriend, not only is he cheating on me, right? Right? Not only is he cheating on me, right? But he didn't even know that John Cleese was in the later Bond movies, right? It's absolutely, it's absolutely ridiculous, right? This, this John Anna guy, I mean, I just think it's one of the worst things I've ever experienced. And I'm putting it up there with rebuilding a neighbour's fence in the rain on the day I passed my cycling proficiency, right? I think it's just, it's the worst thing that's ever been committed to, to humanity, right? That fucking Spanish Inquisition fucking scene and fucking sliding doors. And you just, you know, I was just like, um, fucking, uh, <laughs> there, was a, there was a friend, it was like, uh, this, was, this was old material, right? But there was, this is a true thing. It was just like, there was this, um, I was around my mate's house and his girlfriend said, oh, my favourite film is Sliding Doors. I was like, you better have only seen one fucking film. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because as soon as you watch another one, that is sliding down. That is not, not just sliding doors, mate. It is sliding down the list. It's fucking, absolutely fucking appalling. Anyway, so there are about three or four cringy scenes in Truly Madly Deeply that yeah. sort of like match that type of thing. But, if if you can sort of like imagine those bits out of the film, mm -hmm. I think it's just so it's so incredible. And I and I finished at like five or five thirty in the morning, and I was just my eyes were just streaming. I was just crying, and I I started crying like as soon as he showed up. Well, no, like before he even shows up in the film, and then I was crying for like the majority of the film, and then. Just before I went to bed, I looked in the mirror and my eyes were all like red and swollen, and I was just like, "Oh God!" And uh, um, yeah, I haven't <laughs> been sleeping basically, so it's been it's been it's been yeah, a bit of a roller coaster. I say. saw it last night. I saw a film called The Souvenir that came out last year, and that similarly has that thing where it's a sort of very kind of upper middle class kind of story. I loved it. It doesn't have any of that. It's a proper drama where I was so sucked into it. And it's got Tilda Swinton's in it and Tom Burke. I don't know if you know him. Tom uh, Burke, yeah. yeah. Well, he is Alan Rickman's godson. Is he? Yeah. They're both in it. And it's so... I loved it. I got really <laughs> sucked into it. And it's one of those films where you're, you totally buy into it, even though, as like real people and real characters even though those people are recognisable. So it's not like you see them as actors. It was like watching, uh, you know, it's almost like watching some sort of uh, social realism film where you just believe that these are real people, except you recognise them. I just thought it was so well done. I think it's such a great film. What's it called, and The Souvenir? I, souvenir. And I think that can, I can often have that problem when you're watching something like that and not feel that you relate to these characters at all. Because they're not even like middle class. They're sort of very rich, essentially. All the characters in it are like, from very wealthy backgrounds. And I, it's really hard for me to put my finger on what I liked about it, but it absolutely sucked me in. And I was just totally fell for it. Like after, like five minutes in, I was so like, um, I was just so into it. And I watched that Do last you know, night. Uh, who, who directed it? Oh, she's called Joanna Hogg. Um, right. I think she's done a couple of movies before that, that I think were very well received. And this one came out last year 
and it's produced by Martin Scorsese, weirdly. It's like a British film that he's like exec produced or got involved in. Yeah. He's, um, there's like a podcast with a pair of them that I've just downloaded, which I'm quite looking forward to. Why it's did you watch it? Um, I think I just kept, I think it got really good reviews last year. And it was something I missed out on. And then I found out they're doing like, they're already making a sequel to it. So it's like a What's sequel. It it's, it's a girl who's at film school, and I think it's sort of autobiographical. And she gets involved with Tom Burke, who's this sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a spoiler, so I won't say, but there's, there's stuff about him where it doesn't feel like he is who he's kind of making himself out to be. Right. And she's, like, very young, and it's just that thing where she's, you know, 18-, 19-year-old girl at film school, and it just has that thing of you just feel for her because it's very... She's very naive in that way that 18- or 19-year-olds are, but they feel very grown up. But when you're watching it, you can sort of project all this stuff on it, like this. you would have red signals about this totally, and you know she's yeah. kind of walking into this really dodgy relationship but you can see it as an adult you whereas she's very she's like an 18 year old who's very independent and at film school and thinks she's kind of knows it all but she's just walking into this sort of disaster right really good really good well um so on that subject i saw i finished off watching so i finished off watching uh possession last night oh yeah and um, and I needed something to pick me up, so I decided to emotionally destroy myself with truly <laughs> magic. But Possession, um, it's this 1981 film starring Sam Neill and Isabel Ajani. Yeah. And, um, and she is... I think that that is one of the most extraordinary performances I've ever seen. I mean, it got awards and stuff at the time, but it's one of the most extraordinary performances I've ever seen in any film. Yeah. You know, that bit when she's in the subway and she's just going nuts and it's just like, like it's incredible. It was like the point where um, you're watching the sequence. It's quite a long sequence and whatever you're doing, you know, um, you just freeze, and then you're just completely... Obs- my jaw was open. I was just watching this thing for, like, absolutely incredible performance. And, I, and I've got absolutely no memory or any idea of why I own this on DVD. So Community Vision came over. They fixed my uh, sky for the third time since oh, yeah. lockdown. Uh, and it lasted... Um, I think it lasted half an hour this time before it went away again. Wow. Um, so I'm, I'm still on my DVDs. So I found this. So I, I, it's got quite an interesting cover, but it's weird. So the cover is sort of like um, this image of this uh, woman with sort of like Medusa hair. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like started watching the film, and then it's set in Cold War, Ber- where it's filmed during um, uh, 1980, 1981, and planned during the late 70s, and it's set in Berlin. So there's sort of like it's got the Berlin Wall, then there's East and West Germany. Um, but um, Sam Neill apparently plays like this ex secret agent, but um, I had to look that up on Wikipedia. Yeah, I didn't. I don't remember that as a plot point or anything. 
it's, 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 so he's, 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 he's finished his job and then he's, he's coming, the beginning of the film is him sort of like coming back home. And, um, and so it's, just, but I, I watched, it's kind of like this, um, uh, it's just this really surreal metaphor. I thought it was going to be a straight horror. Yeah. And it's a really surreal metaphorical movie about a couple in, that are breaking down and um, and it's using that, it's using Berlin and the separate halves of Berlin as kind of like a backdrop to kind of a divorce. And uh, their parents, they've got this young kid. Um, and then it just gets more and more surreal and weird. And the performances are incredible. And it's, it's disgusting in places and it mm. is horrifying, but it's not really a horror film. Yeah, she's really, really sort of, unself-conscious performance as well that she really goes for it yeah. in not like but, but also at the same time self-conscious do you know what i mean yeah it's sort of like it's um it's affected it's like that everyone is doing like this heightened performance sam neil in it is just incredible and everyone it's almost like a, a theatrical performance um, I watched the making of afterwards, and they filmed everything with um, uh, wide-angle lenses. Mm -hmm. So they basically there were these really long shots where they had to. They were like saying that when you do everything in close-up, basically uh, someone's smoking, so you'll see the smoke. You do a shot of the smoke, and then you'll do a shot of the cigarette, and then you do a shot of their eyes, or maybe a couple of books in the background and then what you'll do in the edit is you'll piece together sort of like a montage and through the edit you will give the viewer a sense of what you're aiming for you know a sense of like the tone and um uh, and and you can control the pacing and you can really uh, draw people's focus to what you what you're trying to say right but when you use a wide angle lens basically everything that's in the shot counts so you need to be really careful about what you leave in because everything matters mm -hmm. and let's say if there's like that one of the examples that the cinematographer says is that he says that if there's sort of like um uh, a mug of tea and the steam coming off the tea and that's in the shot then that is part of the composition and so that has to have a purpose in the shot so it's not just about what you put in it's about making sure that you take enough stuff out so that it focuses your eyes. Yeah, and basically, most of the shots in uh, Possession are these wide shots where they've got these bare, empty, kind of um, dilapidated flats that they're walking around. And everything has been so sort of like stage managed and set designed and everything is sort of like so like intricate and meticulous that they do all these things. And then they're like these really... Um, theatrical I mean the performances are just so incredible and they're in these really long shots and there's that subway scene but there's so many scenes of Sam Neill just going crazy walking around uh, these, it's just absolutely bizarre like I've never seen anything like it but we were talking in the week weren't we about Sam Neill yeah and I was like saying that like my first introduction to Sam Neill really was Jurassic Park I think I was probably the same yeah so when you get a bit later, and then I think probably the next thing I saw was maybe, I probably saw Dead Calm, mm -hmm. but um, I think probably when I was like, oh, that's Sam Neill, it would be Event Horizon. 
Yeah. He's obviously uh, playing sort of like a really fucked up character in Event Horizon, and then and then you sort of like and then he's in like the the Omen three, uh, and then Possession, which I've just seen. There's another film where he's oh, in the Mouth of Madness. Of course, yeah, yeah. Um, and so Sam Neill basically. Um, in my head, he was kind of like this guy that uh, was sort of like a, um, like Harrison Ford light. Do you know what I mean? He was like yeah. a Harrison Ford substitute. Well, he was, in fact, for Jurassic Park. But he's sort of like this like leading man kind of uh, guy. Uh, but I realised just through kind of like just going through his films that that is literally an opinion that has been based around one movie. Yeah, it's just your introduction to him. And that, yeah, and that's just your introduction. You know, he's in The Piano. Uh, he's, the, he's the evil agent in Memoirs of an Invisible Man. He's in A Cry in the Dark. But basically, he has got, like, a track record of playing Hunt Red October, although he's, he's sort of a good guy in that. But um, he's got, like, this track record of playing kind of, like, these really... Um, it's extreme characters. Yeah, like extreme sort of like crazy fucked up mental characters. And then because of Jurassic Park, you know, you see Event Horizon and you go, that's a bit out of the norm. And you go, no, it's not. Jurassic Park was a completely left field casting. Yeah. Like, like that's, that, he's great in Jurassic Park. Yeah. Because um, he, he's sort of unlikable at the beginning when he gets that fossil and he sort of like threatens the kid and everything like that. But... Um, <laughs> But it's sort of like, so it's, it's, it's sort of like an interesting performance. He does something interesting with that very straight role in Jurassic Park. And I suppose if you are more familiar with him, that idea of him sort of not liking the kids at the start and being a bit prickly probably plays in more with your sort of idea of him as like a screen actor. And that the fact he then sort of mellows over the course of the film, it feels more like a journey if you're, if you're already aware of his previous work. Yeah, but he's also sort of like playing a real 1990s manly man. Do you know what I mean? It's like, hey, I can't work the seatbelt, so I'm going to improvise and just tie it together. Do you know what I mean? That bit when they're on the helicopter. Was that weird thing in Jurassic Park 3, your kind of, your equivalent avatar for him is William H. Macy, who in that is quite a loser guy who has that thing where, and he's divorced from, who is it? Is it Tia Leone? Tia Leone, Tia Leone yeah. Yeah. And um, and in that, it's the idea that he's actually, since they were divorced, he's kind of become, he's kind of got his act together a bit and he started working out and he's a bit fitter than he was. But he's essentially that kind of, he, he joins that as you start watching it and you go, oh, it's William H. Macy, who's William H. Macy in all the films. But in that, it's sort of by the end of the film, they turn him from this kind of loser character into this leading man. Yeah. Um, and what are you saying? That that's sort of like more of a Sam Neill part? Well, once they've done the same thing, thing. That they're doing, that that might be what they were thinking, that they're getting these kind of slightly left-field leading men. Yeah. I don't think that they really did know what they were doing by the time they did the third one. <laughs> and I think that they were all cast, and then they, uh, they changed the script so much that everyone just made the best out of a terrible situation. Yeah. But I like Jurassic Park 3. The bit when the dinosaur says, hi, Alan. I just go, <laughs> yes, yes. Alan. Everyone hates that. And I'm just like, it's a dream sequence. Mm. I think um, the third one, I'm sure we said this, but the third one feels like 
it's just sort of lent into the idea that they're B-movies, and it's like a 90-minute yeah. dinosaur movie, and you go, it's actually perfectly reasonable. That's like... It's not, it doesn't feel like it's a blockbuster. It, it yeah. feels like it's kind of... And also, I don't remember any marketing for it at all. I just remember it was at the cinema, and I was like, oh, just put a three. And then yeah. I went. Um, I think any film in the 90s that has a running time of, like, 90 minutes you know something's kind of gone wrong and they've just gone, yeah, right. let's just get it out there. Yeah. Um, the bit in Jurassic Park where he gets the two uh, bits of um, seatbelt and ties them together on a helicopter, yeah, it's sort of like, it's meant to be, we are seeing Sam Neill, um, he doesn't really understand uh, the modern world, like seatbelts, right? So he, so he improvises and makes it do, right? But what that bit in the film is actually doing is it's showing you he has the two bits of seatbelt he picks up are the female parts. Ah. So the male part is the bit that inserts into the female part and locks, right? Ah. So what he's doing is taking two female parts of the seatbelt, tying them together and making them work, which is basically what the dinosaurs do in Jurassic Park, where they're all female dinosaurs, but then they breed. So... It's not just a bit of macho bullshit posturing. It actually tells the entire story of Jurassic Park in one bit of um, macho, macho bullshit posturing. Very clever. Very smart. Never Very clever. Lots of stuff like that uh, you know, sprinkled in throughout Jurassic Park. It's, uh, it's a really good film. Uh, check it out. I don't know if you've first seen it, but uh, check it out. It's, uh, it's out. It's on my... DVD at all or Blu-ray? Can you find that anywhere? It's, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it was on my one-to-watch list. And, uh, I, I, uh, I, Give it a Google. See if you can find it. Maybe maybe someone's put it up on YouTube or something. Or streamed it off somewhere. Apparently it's a prequel to uh, Jurassic World. So oh. uh, that's what look out for. Yeah, there you go. Um, let's play a song. This is Alice Cooper in Detroit. Let's keep fighting. Don't give up. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back! We're back! Welcome back to the uh, studio. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I call it my studio. (laughs) Uh, What was that we were just playing, Nick? Uh, that was um, Alice Cooper's uh, COVID release. <laughs> oh, he just released it for that? Yeah, so he's been uh, recording stuff uh, with Bob Ezrin. Um, I think Bob Ezrin's in Toronto. And um, Alice Cooper sort of... So they were they were on tour with Thunder in Berlin doing this thing. And then basically I watched an interview with him this morning and... Um, he came off stage and they said, right, everyone, get in the van. We're going home. They had eight, eight dates left and then the rest of the tour was cancelled and then basically they all went into lockdown. So oh, they, wow. they all had their stage makeup and costumes on. They all got in the van and then they got driven back and then they ended up... So he's in Arizona now. So he's uh, recording stuff uh, in his home studio and that was one of the things that he did. Um, yeah. That's his new, that's do. new single. A lot of talking in it. Um, quite like it. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't. 
I listened to it for the first time and I was thinking, is it a classic? And then I went to the shop and I was singing it on the way to the shop and I thought, well, you know, I'm singing it. It normally takes me a, few a lot of listens to sort of like, just sort of like lump it in with everything else. Yeah. So, I guess he knows what he's doing, doesn't he? They can well, probably knock a, he's got enough experience, he can probably knock a song out. Yeah, probably. Well, <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> What's the other thing that I watched um, this week? Really madly deeply. Oh, I watched The Man From Uncle. Oh, the Guy Ritchie version? Yeah, never seen it. Oh, I really like I, that film. I thought it looked awful. Looked um, awful? Yeah. Um, it was... Um, and also, uh, I really loved the TV series when I was growing up. I did. And, um, I remember when I was... Um, at school, we did uh, individual in drama. We did individual skills, and I and I made a program uh, for my individual. It was like I wrote a ten-minute play, and I did a program which had a set design on it, and uh, and on the, on the back cover, uh, I made up a quote, and I uh, attributed it to uh, Napoleon Solo, and um, he used to. I, I think I even preferred the Man from Uncle to. Uh, Mission Impossible, um, and I really, yeah, really loved it. And then when the film, because I was in Uncle, I used to get people, and I still do sometimes, people coming up going, "Oh, so does that mean that you are the man from Uncle?" And then you go to go, <laughs> "Oh yeah, oh yeah." <laughs> So when the film came out, I was, when did it come out? It was like eight years ago? I did it long ago as that. Yeah, it might be, you know. It's always, these things are always longer than I think they are. I was almost going to say like, three years, but it bet it is like eight years. I think it was, I think, it, yeah. Uh, because he's done loads of stuff since then. He's done Aladdin. Aladdin. Uh, he's done, yeah, 2015. So, mm, five years. Five years ago. Oh, he's done, he's done a lot in five years then, hasn't he, Guy Ritchie? Um, yeah, I thought that that looked sort of, um, not dreadful, but it was just sort of like not my sort of thing. And I watched it, because uh, it's on Netflix, and, um, uh, yeah, loved it. Oh, yeah, thought, that was great. It was brilliant. Really slick, really stylish, uh, really funny. Um, I think Army Hammer is brilliant in it. Yes. Um, he's good in most uh, things, actually. He's quite surprising. I don't think of him as someone I really like, but I don't think I've seen him be bad in anything. No, he's really good. Um, Call Me By Your Name is brilliant in. He's really good in The Lone Ranger. Mm. Uh, obviously, he's really good in The Social Network. I just think he's great. Mm. And it's really interesting because, obviously, Henry Cavill went on to be Superman and Army Hammer was... Wasn't he cast as... Yeah, he cast as Batman, wasn't he? He was cast as Batman in the George Miller Justice League film that never got made. Yeah. And um, So you've sort of like got a Batman versus Superman movie. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just Batman. really good. <laughs> and then there are these action sequences that are just um, just so well put together. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's so rare to see something that's, I think, that um, makes... Uh, visual sense these days in action movies. Yes. Yeah. You know, where geographically it works. But also, Guy Ritchie is so stylish in that film. I think it's his best film, maybe. Mm. Um, 
it's sort of um, because I was talking to, I was talking to someone else, but it's all, you know, even something like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, which is probably his best film, um, that was coming out on the tail end of all that Quentin Tarantino knockoff stuff. Very much so. But even, but you shouldn't lump that film in with that because Lock, Stock is kind of like it's. It, it, there were so many films that were basically trying to be Quentin Tarantino and it still felt like Lockstock had its own sort of like um, sense to of itself. Yeah. Well, Lockstock, it I don't mean this is an insult. I always thought it seemed like and was plotted like a very stylish episode of Minder. It's got like <laughs> three, or four, three or four subplots based around some companies and a bit of crime that eventually yeah. kind of sorts itself out. And you go, yeah, it's like yeah. a very stylish Minder. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, but the man from Uncle completely sort of like surprised me because uh, yeah. I think I really didn't enjoy King Arthur that much, I know and I did didn't like Aladdin. Um, um, I, the, the TV series Man from Uncle was like a thing that came out, you know, that was almost like a sort of spoof or a rip off of James Bond, but really had its own kind of sense to it. Had its had like had a lot more kind of sort of quite sort of knowing comedy to it. And this does action in the same way that makes, I think, makes a lot of the Bond stuff seem a bit old-fashioned now, a lot of the modern stuff, whereas that has, that takes the kind of thing that you might do in, like, Roger Moore Bond, but does it for the modern modern era. And there's a scene where Henry Cavill drives his, that lorry into the, into yeah. the, the, the water, and it fills up, and it's definitely him, and it just, it's him doing the stunt that you can kind of see other people doing. But it's so... You'd expect to be a stuntman, but it just makes a point and... Uh, like, almost like you're doing a Mission Impossible, makes an absolute point of showing you it's definitely Henry Cavill doing it and having him with his, like, sort of checking his cuffs and checking he looks stylish while while the water's filling up and, and just shows you in close-up this stunt that if it was in, like, a Bond, you would sort of be like, well, don't, don't see his face. Make sure you can't... Make sure you yeah. can't see Daniel Craig's face or whatever. And it just seems quite modern and quite like, like it, it, it sort of showing everyone's involved. And it felt, it felt quite up to date. And I, I actually think weirdly, a lot of the Bond stuff that I think is seen as quite cutting edge now feels like it's a bit of a rip off of Bourne or it's a bit, it feels like yeah. it's sort of taken from other films. Whereas this almost feels like a film that you go, well, this is kind of how you should be doing James Bond in 2020. It's- it's uh, that sequence with the, uh, that whole sequence where he gets in the van and uh, eats a sandwich and drinks some wine, mm. and you can just basically see on the windshield of the van that he's in, there's this huge action sequence being played out, and the focus is on a guy eating a sandwich. Yeah. And uh, but in the background, there's this huge speedboat chase with explosions going on. And it's just such a smart way of... To, so at the end of that... And then he drives the van off the off the pier. And it's kind of like... But at the end of that sequence, you just kind of like go, I've not seen... Like, there's real intelligence behind the way that they shot that and framed it. And it's really light. Like, even when the water's filling up and everything like mm. that, it's sort of played for sort of like... Um, well, like you say, so sort of like Roger Moore era um, fun. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's very. It's just got such a light touch to it, uh, and there's some really dark jokes in there. Mm. But um, 
I just thought, I just, but there's like five or six sequences in that film that are as good as that truck sequence. And you go, if you've got five or six great set pieces like that, then you've got, you've got a good movie and the whole film holds together. And I was just totally surprised. So if, um, so if people can't get a copy of uh, a random DVD of possession that magically appears in their (laughs) living room, then um, everyone should have Netflix really. So, um, uh, yeah, I recommend The Man From U.N.C.L.E. if oh, you're looking for something yeah. fun to watch in lockdown. Uh, really good. And the other film I watched was Beverly Hills Ninja, which oh, um, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, I, I've, never, I've never been a massive fan of, but I watched it again. Uh, and uh, if you're in the right mood, then I recommend, well, do I recommend it? <laughs> it's such a stupid film and it, it's <laughs> yeah it's a, it's not it's not a great film but there is enough in it that made me really enjoy it it's chris farley so so if you love chris farley and you haven't seen beverly hills ninja then you should definitely watch it but it's a weird one because you just sort of like go uh tommy boy is so tightly plotted and structured and put together and and I watched it again recently, and I just think it's it's a dumb comedy. It's like a double act, you know, fat guy, skinny guy, sarcastic guy, dumb guy comedy. But in actual fact, it's saying quite a lot about um, uh, 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 blue-collar workers and, um, uh, and industries. And it's kind of like you've got Dan Aykroyd's character, who's basically saying that he's working for the working men, but in actual fact, he's a complete sleazebag and, you know, it's all for show. And in actual fact, he's just as corporate as anyone else. And it's kind of like in this sort of dumb comedy saying, don't trust corporations, you know. And it's and it's, it's sort of like almost has sort of like a political message going through it. I've seen this film 30 or 40 times and I was noticing stuff in Tommy Boy recently when I watched it that I'd not that I'd never noticed before. And you go, oh, my God, it's not just this thing, but there's another thing that's going on at a different layer, which makes it, like, rewatchable, and there's an intelligence behind it. Whereas Beverly Hills Ninja is just a man hitting himself in the face with a stick for an hour and a half. You know? And there's no subplot. There's no <laughs> subtext to it. Um, anyway, right. So, should we do some fan mail? Let's do some fan mail. Let's do some uh, fun mail. Play that, play that funky music, uh, white boy. <laughs> so, um, wow, good day. Loved the Matt Goss episode. Are you going to do any John Carpenter watch-alongs? Twitch may work well for that. Good luck to Nick for Eurovision. No, didn't win. Uh, came 12th. Um, <laughs> 12th. Unbelievable. 12th. Can you believe that? And Susie Dent, do you know how many points Susie Dent gave me? How many? No points. Nil point. Nil point. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. How many songs were there in total if you're 12? 14. Right? She made it. I didn't even, I didn't didn't watch the uh, results uh, thing. Um... Uh, I've, I've still got it to watch. I've got it. I've got it uh, on my, uh, you know, on my save things on YouTube. I, I might get around to it, but I, I'm not going to 
Shaggy. So what do they mean? Which Orville? Orville the Duck? Which Shaggy? Shaggy from Scooby-Doo? Do they mean Shaggy from Scooby-Doo? Do they mean uh, uh, Shaggy? What do they mean Shaggy? West Indian themed rapper uh, <laughs> from the 90s. Imagine if it was sh- the, the singer Shaggy in the mm. spaceship, the Orville. That's Ooh. something I wouldn't pay money for. I don't understand <laughs> any of that. Axel these are just absolute bullshit, this Are these the people that write into us? Can you vet these? Because these are just cunts that are wasting our time. Hello, I started listening because of the Matt Gosh show, and we'll be listening to the next one. Do you like the colour purple? Mary Bucket. Now, again, can you be more specific with this? Do you mean the movie, the book, of the colour purple? I like the colour purple. Um, the movie... Um, uh, it, it's not my go-to Spielberg, but um, it's uh, uh, Whoopi Goldberg got an Oscar. 
did she? Or nominated? Oprah Winfrey got an Oscar. Whoopi Goldberg got an Oscar for Ghost. Um, and the book, um, I read it at school. Never read the book. Like, liked it. The colour? Yeah, the colour. First on my list. I, I love it. I think subconsciously that is why uh, the Joker is my favourite uh, villain. And Prince? Never cared for it. <laughs> Hello! Now, do you mean the singer, the member of the royal family, or the, uh, the, the carving that I have on my wall that has been printed? It's very confusing. Uh, hello. I started. Oh, um, dear Nick and Nat, I love this stay-at-home version of Fan Club. Why? What makes it different? What makes the stay-at-home version different from the studio? Yeah, I'm interested, actually. I Do you not like no idea. the regular one? People, maybe it's because um, we have to listen to each other. Maybe we have to stop. We can't talk over each other. Maybe it's that, but. Yeah. Chill and Cozy says, I've been watching a few of your clips on socials and I have a question for Nick. Nick, why do you have a sex doll on your sofa? I'm really curious to know. Cheers, a fossa. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, why do I have a sex doll on my sofa? Nothing there. Um, I don't have one, don't have one today. Um, why? Uh, because I've been lonely in lockdown and um, I like fucking... Yeah, um, I don't. I don't know what you mean, uh, dear Nick and Nat. Thank you for doing your show. Finally, yes, that's all we've ever wanted. <laughs> you know, we don't do it for the money. We do it for the gratitude. We don't do it for the money. <laughs> so some gratitude would be lovely, uh, dear Nick and Nat. Thank you for doing your show. It's really keeping me company during this awful period. Another thing doing at the moment is watching shitloads of films. You know, I'm quite a Star Wars fan. I mean, the actual Star Wars saga, not the bollocks that Disney is releasing. <laughs> and you were in that, weren't you, Count Dooku? Anyway, I recently had the courage to watch The Last Jedi. I thought, how shit can it be? And Nick, you are absolutely right. It is unbelievably shit. I wish I would have followed your advice. I'm a cunt. Thanks, John. That's all right, John. The first, the first step in this is admitting that you're a cunt. The second is trying to do something about it. Hi, Nick and Matt. <laughs> I hope you both survived in lockdown and haven't run out of your favourite snacks. I was looking on Amazon Prime in the dregs of the movies that are included in the price of the subscription when I happened upon The Leprechaun starring Warwick Davis and Jennifer Aniston, a classic. I decided to give this a miss as all I knew about it was the scene from Wayne's World. It's actually Wayne's World 2 and I never liked Lucky Charms. However, I kept scrolling through the Amazon titles. I saw that there were four more leprechaun films, including Leprechaun in Space and Leprechaun in the Hood. Upon further research, I have learned that there are a total of eight films in the franchise. Someone must be watching them. So, Nick and Nat, have you seen them? And are they any good? And if not, why am I doing a Jimmy Savile impression? <laughs> so, Nick and Nat, have you seen them? Are they any good? And if not, are they at least better than Master of Disguise? Thanks, folks. Stay safe. Sarah. Um, now, the Leprechaun 1, I remember it uh, being as good as um, 
Critters. Yeah, I think I've seen the first one, but a long time ago. And I think, it, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it, it was sort of fine, I think. I think that there were so many that you couldn't even keep up. And then also, they've rebooted them now. Um, uh, I don't know who's playing the lead. It's not Warwick Davis, but um, there you go. Okay. Uh, this one is just, yes, please. Okay. Bit late for the party. Didn't start listening to the end of 2019, but I've been beavering away at them. Didn't do it in order, so assumed the spoiler clip was Adam Hess. I already discovered it was Mark Simmons. Very good chap from the hosts and their guests. Much prefer it to other shows, which just seem to spend most of the time thanking listeners for the gifts they send in. Haggers86. Yes, we, we don't get gifts here. We much prefer to read out fan mail about how great we are. Meh! Part the five stars. As long as they're happy, who gives a fuck? I am robot. I mean, that's just a waste of time. Boris Bikes, credit for developing the enacting, credit for developing and enacting the scheme has been a source of debate. What? And this credit. is about me talking about Boris Bikes. This must be Natalie's given us this. As oh, a, this is without a fan mail now. It's now beginning. literally okay. Boris, this is, this is fan mail from Natalie, as we uh, as live. Credit for developing and enacting the scheme has been a source of debate. Johnson has taken credit for the plan, although the initial concept was announced by his predecessor, Ken Livingston, during the latter's term in office. Now we're blown. Julia Stevenson said in 2012 that it was the favourite role of her career. She's amazing in Truly Madly Deeply. Okay. That is all for the fan mail this oh, week. Shaggy... It, the real name of Shaggy the singer is Orville, so maybe that makes more sense now. That bit of fan mail. That does make a lot of sense. Okay, didn't, more sense didn't, didn't understand it, it. Makes more sense that you know than wishing I was the character off of Scooby Doo and that you were a spaceship. Yes, it does. Or a duck, a green <laughs> duck. Um, we're going to play a song now. Yes, and then um, I'm going to get our guest. Yes, the song I'm going to play is Girls Talk by Dave Edmonds. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back! We're back! We are back in the studios with me, Nick, Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf. And we're joined now by podcaster extraordinaire and DJ and now author Matthew Stocks. Hello, Matt. How are you, fellas? Thank you very much for having me on your show. This is a very futuristic, strange setup, isn't it? It's exciting. Have you recorded well, anything in lockdown, Matt? I'm doing some phone interviews, yeah. Let me show you what I'm invested in. Obviously, the rest of the people listening won't get to see it, but for your benefit... Sorry. <laughs> I invested in what's called, if people want to Google it and get the visual image for themselves, a Rodecaster Pro. And this is basically like a home radio desk, which allows you to phone people via Bluetooth so you can record like high quality phone interviews. So I've been doing a couple of those, but this is my first Zoom experience. So um, yeah, this is new ground for me. Do you mean your first ever Zoom? Yeah, you're, you're popping my cherry helm. This is your first ever Zoom? My first ever Zoom, I know. I mean, how behind the times am I? <laughs> what the Don't tell me you're still using House Party. <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> what have you been doing for the last is. fucking well, I know three months? Mate, Jesus I've Christ. only just come around to watch. 
WhatsApp. Fuck me. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay, that's fine. So um, we met. Uh, was it last summer? Yeah, it was just before your Edinburgh run. I want to say it was probably April. It was probably around this time last year, maybe a little bit earlier. But yeah, we did a chat for my podcast ahead of your stint up in Edinburgh. Um, and your podcast is called Life in the Stocks, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah, um, I'm currently at episode number 164 as we talk of that, um, and it's been going almost three years. And it features like a range of entertainers, creatives. So there's musicians, there's comedians, there's actors, photographers, filmmakers, the full spectrum. Um, and yeah, I mean, the first kind of big guest I probably, well, episode one was with Steve-O from Jackass. So it got off to a fairly kind of good start. But the one for me, which really was a turning point was episode 10. And that was with John Lydon. Because when I launched the show, he was my number one dream guest to go for. And 10 episodes in, I managed to bag him. And what was interesting with John is that then opened a lot of doors for me. A lot of people would see that he'd been on. And I think because he's one of those elusive, mysterious, still in the artistic community, revered people. I know that the public like to take the piss out of him and call him a butter salesman and whatnot. But when you're talking to musicians and punks and creative people, John's still very much, you know, the figure of alternative culture and groundbreaking art that he's always been. And so that opened a lot of doors then to get people like Sean Ryder and Alan McGee and Tom Morello and Be Real and all kinds of interesting musicians from all ends of the spectrum. So, yeah. And he was great. He was surprisingly a lovely, sweet, considered, really, really interesting, nice man. And what John Lydon's Nathan. John Lydon's uh, great. I mean, his, um, his audition piece for the Sex Pistols was I'm 18 by Alice Cooper. It certainly and, was. Um, and he did a uh, he did a radio documentary on Alice Cooper that I taped, and I used to listen to it all the time. Um, and that stuff about the butter, I mean, basically, he couldn't get money to make a studio album, so he did a butter exactly. Advert, yeah. he, and he, he took he all the money from that. Hell. Yeah, he took all the money from that, and uh, he, and he uh, self produced an album. And he was like, like saying, "Don't you have?" <laughs> Don't you have a problem with like advertising because you're a punk? And he was like, "Why? I like butter." <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm behind you know, the product. <laughs> it's just like at least it was a product that he uses. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like I, you know, I really, I really love him. I mean, I grew up thinking that he was sort of like one of the most. You know, whenever you saw him on um, when he was doing Pill, and uh, you saw him on uh, Top of the Pops and stuff like that. Um, he'd always be like this. Um, I think he was probably, I didn't know anything about him, but he was like a cartoon character and I just always connected to him when I was little. Uh, so he was a great guest for me. When he was a kid, I think he had, I can't remember what disease he had, but he had something which meant he had to stay in bed, I think for two years and he lost all his memory. So he had to start again from the age of about 13 from scratch. Oh, I and didn't know that. Kind of made him always feel like this, this outsider and this alien in his own life. And that's why he's always, I think, been a, you know, a very kind of obvious outsider is because he's always felt out of step because of that experience as a kid. And it's interesting as well, because obviously Iggy Pop did the, the car commercial advert when there's the little doll version of him. And nobody gave him flack for that, which is interesting because he's clearly not at all invested in his product. At least John is probably slapping a bit of butter on his toast. Whereas Iggy was just cashing in and he probably didn't need the money either. Maybe and it took me 
it took me, but it took me ages, years to realise that that icky pop advert is a reference to him being the passenger. There we, I never knew that till this exact moment. There we go. So he's even taking one of his most famous songs and he's cashing in on that and going, hey, I'm a passenger, that's why I need car insurance. I think the worst advert of all time has to be, tell me what you think about this, guys, um, Harvey Keitel using the Mr. Wolf character from Pulp Fiction in, again, I want to say it's like a claims insurance company. Insurance advert, yeah. Talk about bastardising your legacy. I mean, Tarantino must be livid. Well, presumably Tarantino agreed to it, right? So it must yeah, be his character. Yeah. He's like, Harvey's on hard times. He hasn't done a movie in a while. Obviously, he's got the Irishman coming up. But until then, let's tide him over with this. I, I don't know. Those things are like um, lost in translation, aren't they? So they're adverts that get shown in, perhaps in Britain and nowhere else. <laughs> it's like that thing of just doing a, an advert in Japan that only people in Japan will see. And you get to kind of keep your legacy. But you're also forgetting that even though Harvey Keitel wasn't in Hateful Eight, he was in Adam Sandler's Ridiculous Six. So <laughs> he, he He's in a lot of Sandler was... movies, isn't he? Which is the one where he plays the devil? Is that Little Nicky? Little Nicky. Little Nicky. Great movie. Great fucking movie. Um, Alice Cooper did a Staples advert for the stationery store. For yeah, Back but to Alice Cooper can do them because I don't think it kind of taints or contradicts his artistic persona. I mean, anybody can do them ultimately. I think whatever people choose to do with their you know, time and how they want to make money. Yeah. I suppose with John Lydon as well, there's the argument that doing an advert and pissing people off that would have liked him is probably the most punk thing you could do. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What's more punk than pissing off the punks? Yeah. What's more punk than butter? (laughs) (laughs) Nutterly butterly because it's not real, but it tastes like it is? Yeah. (laughs) That's like pop music. You'd get steps advertising that. (laughs) So what have you guys been up to in lockdown, other than making radio shows over Zoom? Whoa, 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 whoa. This is our show. We ask the questions, right? Don't, don't fall back into your old habits, right? Um, so what have you been doing? What have you been doing? In, where, what room are you in? You're by a doorway. This is my lounge. You want a quick tour again? Obviously, people listening won't no, see. No, 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 absolutely not. There's the couch. There's my nice little... <laughs> Floral rug, and um, that's the end of the tour. Yeah, I'm in my lounge at my flat in Walthamstow. And what have I been doing with lockdown? I've been writing a book, Nicholas, is what I've been doing. Um, Do you want to hear the story of how this came about? Well, that got announced, like, last week, didn't it? uh, Last Friday, yeah, a week ago today, it got announced on all channels. And uh, the response has been amazing. I've been very humbled and, you know, over the moon, really, with the reaction. It's been amazing. How far through it are you? So the premise of it is it's going to be based on conversations that I've had in my podcast. Um, So the book itself is going to be called Life in the Stocks. That's the main title. And then the subtitle is Voracious Conversations with Musicians and Creatives. Um, And voracious, obviously, is a term that people use to refer to kind of having like a ravenous appetite when it comes to reading. However, I misspelt voracious when putting it into Google to (laughs) double check the meaning of the word, which, you know, bodes well for an author in the making. And I spelt it with an E, not an O. And actually, voracious with an E is also a word, and it's like a legal term traditionally, but it basically means representing or seeking the truth and authenticity. And you're on, like, a moral crusade for facts. But you're, I think for me... Like that, you're 
Yeah, well, hopefully for me, that represents what I'm trying to do with my podcast and my show is get to the truth of these people's lives and their stories. And so I thought, oh, that's a nice kind of reappropriation of the word. So it's, I guess, a classic mistake turned into a happy accident. So that's the title of the book. And it'll be essentially kind of broken into various thematical chapters, ranging from childhood to fame and success, alcohol and drugs, politics and religion, creative partnerships, and then life and death in the stocks, um, which is going to be the more heavy kind of stuff where we talk about things like uh, suicide, depression, 9-11, the Paris attacks. Uh, And then it'll end on a miscellaneous chapter with things which weren't quite you know, suited to any of those specific chapters, but, you know, still have entertainment value to kind of end on a nice random upbeat note at the end. So at the moment, I'm just going through all my episodes from series one, which is the first hundred, and transcribing all the American guests. So for this book, I'm only going to do American guests. And then I want to release another one later on where that's all the UK ones, because I feel like the cultural history and stories of those two countries are quite although similar in many ways, quite different in a lot of others. So I want to make them almost like cultural studies of the countries where the guests are from, as well as the personal stories of their lives and everything. So I'm probably about 80% of the way through transcription. And then once I finish transcription, it'll be a case of ordering all the words in a way which tells a story and makes sense. And then I'll write my own introduction to each chapter, main intro to the book, done. So I'm hoping to finish it next month. Um, July the 3rd, Friday, is when I'm hoping to have it done by. Is that your deadline? That is my deadline that I've set myself. It's not set in stone, and the publisher, okay. the publisher said it doesn't exactly have to be then, but the, the release date, which we're aiming for, is September the 8th, and they say they like to have three full months between handing in the manuscript and releasing it to get everything you know done in the correct way. So, yeah, if I can get it done, then it'd be good. It also means I get to have a celebratory handing in of the book party on uh, Saturday, July the 4th, American Independence Day. So oh, I'll, be, the, I'll be down the, the park date, with the Crater Budweiser. <laughs> the date that the Will Smith film is set. That's great. What a great way go. to celebrate. What, um, I'm back. <laughs> I believe it's also the date that so Tom Cruise was born on. The was it really? film. Yeah, yeah. Had I think it was about. It had to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's what I've been up to, really. I haven't really done a lot else. I've been out of the house three or four times in the last month. One of them was to see you, Nick. Uh, social distance. Yeah. Um, well, you were telling me about you transcribing it at the time. I was, um, yeah. It started, I think, then. Uh, yeah, and so basically you've locked yourself away and then you've just been sort of like... Because t- I was saying to you that basically the way a lot of stuff works is that um, uh, whenever I'm writing anything, there's always... Uh, if I go into a TV production company and I write something... Um, they always like go, oh, well, just send us your notes and then we'll type it all up for you and stuff like that. I like to be really intricate because I'm all over kind of like where I put the commas and where I put the full stuff. And, you know, it, it has to be kind of like authored in my voice to the very last detail. So I always find it a little bit weird when you hand stuff over to transcribe it. Um, but it is an option to sort of like have hun- like a hundred podcast episodes that you've got and going through them all and transcribing them. And the way that you were saying was basically that you locked yourself away and then you would basically transcribe them. And then you'd, you'd done like 25 episodes. We transcribe 25 episodes and then you go away and then you lock yourself away again and then you do the next batch 
And then yeah. you can go, like, I've done a quarter of all the work that I need to do. I've done half of the work I need to do. And um, uh, I suppose, um, would you say that, because you're a globetrotting DJ as well. I used to be, pre-lockdown, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, Would you say that lockdown has sort of like aided your um, your focus? Oh, a hundred percent couldn't have happened at a better time. And it was interesting because the way the book came about was it was my birthday on March the 11th, which was the week before all of this pandemic thing, you know, really came to the forefront and the country shut down and everything. And I got an email out of the blue from this publisher, a guy called Tyson from the publishing house Rare Bird. And the other thing I should say as well is the, the publishing company, Rare Bird, is an extremely legit, very credible and respected publishing company. Uh, Sean Penn has put out his novels with them, and they've released all kinds of interesting and exciting titles from musicians. And it's, it's a very kind of alternative, quote-unquote, printing house and very much, you know, I think a suitable home for my show. Um, but I got an email out of the blue from him the day before my birthday saying, Hi, Matt, you've had a bunch of guests on your show that I've either previously worked with and released book with or are about to um would you like to meet whilst i'm in london because i'm here for this literary event which is being cancelled do you want to meet up and i said well it's my birthday tomorrow and i'm always somebody that will try and arrange a business meeting on my birthday because i know i'm going to get a free meal or at least a free drink out of it <laughs> so i was like yeah i'll meet you it's my birthday but i'll take the time so he's like oh no you don't have to i was like no 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 i insist so i was like <laughs> that night Royal Albert Hall and it turns out he was going as well to the gig and he was staying right by the Royal Albert Hall so I went to this pub I was uh, in a group chat with my whatsapp group um, that I recently joined because I was off to Brighton that weekend to celebrate my birthday with a group of friends so I sent a text into this group saying lads you'll never guess what I'm off to get a book deal as a joke because I thought I was just going to go meet this guy maybe you do like a little networky thing maybe I'll host a Q&A for them at some point down the line whatever, get a free drink and a meal out of it, go see Brian Ferry, good times. And I sit down and he just says, so he doesn't really waste any time as Americans, as I'm sure you know, alike. they're just straight to the point. And he said, have you ever thought about doing a book? And I said, well, yeah, I've, I've had quite a few ideas. I started pitching him on my toes, these ideas that I'd been having. And he said, well, you know, they sound well and good, whatever, backtrack. What about doing one on your podcast? I've been listening to your show. I think it's really good. And I think it would be a really good basis for a book so it came about on my birthday out of surprise the week before lockdown so then as we went into lockdown and all my dj work all my live q a shows even all my podcast sponsors have pulled out because you know the industry that i'm in and you're in has just crumbled in the wake of this it literally could not have come at a better time because what else is there to do in lockdown other than sit at home alone grow a beard and write so that's what i've been doing for two months but also within that time, you went off the grid, didn't you? You kind of like left social media and you locked your phone away and you had some time to yourself, didn't you? I did that purely and simply to make some real headway with the book. It wasn't really for any, any other reason. It was an experiment and I quite like to do those. I think I'm a little bit like you in a sense, Nick. I've noticed that, you know, you just before lockdown were cooking these exquisite fresh lovely meals at your parents house because you obviously love to cook but then as soon as lockdown hit you're like fuck it i'm just gonna live on noodles <laughs> <laughs> i think like me you go through these extremes um and so yeah i thought if i turn my phone off for two weeks straight and have no contact with anyone then that'll give me the opportunity to make some real progress with the first hurdle of the book so that's what i did and yeah just dropped off the grid and actually through doing that 
had kind of a detox, like, you know, a digital detox and a, a mental cleanse. And it kind of reset the button, really, ready for the next however many weeks or months we're going to be in the same situation that we're in. And book aside, um, how, how do you feel like that detox worked for you mentally? It was actually one of the best things I've done in a long time. I like to have booze detoxes three times throughout the year as well. I usually do dry January. I'll try and do a summer month if I can, but I usually fail. And then I'll do sober October. And whenever I do those, I just find, again, it's like a reset. I quite like extreme, uh, extreme changes to the diet. So occasionally I do like water fast as well, where I just have nothing but water for three days solid. And you kind of just flush out all the bad toxins in your body. I quite like, because I don't really do extreme sports or athletics, you know, I'm not really a sporty person, but I quite like to do almost mental, not endurance tests, but do you know what I mean? Things that take you out of your comfort zone and put you in a new mental space, almost as like a reset or a refresh. And it was really nice. It showed me, I think, the the value of the people in your life that matter. I think with social media, everybody has massive circles around them and you're trying to reach everybody and engage with everybody and pretend like everybody's your friend and maybe they are, but really you only need a handful of good friends rather than loads of mates. And it's, I think when you drop off the social media sphere that you find out who your good friends are, who you want to share your, you know, news and moments of joy with, and also who you want to confide in during those more difficult moments. So actually it was cool for me to learn the people who, you know, in my life are important. Yourself, Nick, being one of them. Yeah, that's very kind. Thank you. Um, I, uh, not through lockdown, but just as a thing, that happened to me a couple of years ago where it's kind of like um, uh, I thought I thought like a moment of clarity where I was trying to please everyone all the time and I found it absolutely exhausting. And then I just sort of like shuffled around. You know, remember my birthday nap? We all went out for dinner. Yes, yeah. And, um, and I just thought that that group of people were just sort of like, you know, some of my favourite people. And you go, I don't need more than this. And it was kind of like, and it helped me clarify what was important in my life and what wasn't. And I think that lockdown is sort of like focusing that as well. Because everyone's going through their own thing. So I'm not feeling like I have to please everyone all the time. You know, if I can get a bit of work done and I can make myself happy, then anything else is sort of like a bit of a bonus while I sort my own brain out. And um, I'm getting to a point now where I'm sort of like being a little bit more, um, doing a bit more stuff on social media. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's a good reset, like what you were saying, but I think it's an important thing. It feels like it's been a reset just for the world. I don't want to go too hippie, but, you know, when you walk around and you're out and about in, in public in the park and you just feel like there's more wildlife and nature's breathing and, you know, flourishing and buzzing. And it feels like, and I was reading, I think it's been something like 17% reduction in pollution since lockdown. And it feels like everybody is sort of having this moment of, well, hopefully you are taking, you know, stock of what's important and mm -hmm. pausing your life for a minute and because i think you know with the world that we're in everything is about pace isn't it you've got to keep moving on to the next you've got to buy the next thing achieve the next thing do the next thing get more rah, rah. and i think everybody i think can benefit from stopping all of that and reeling it in a bit and taking time to figure out what really matters to you individually and then to us as a society and as a whole and, but I also think that because of our generation, our generation is the sort of generation that um, 
that found a way to monetize podcasts. No, we haven't, Nat. We're <laughs> 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 trying to but, figure you know, it out. Trying to figure it out. But we're still, but as comedians, we've been sort of like self-employed, and it's kind of like, uh, and and a lot of the circles that we're in, you know, whether it be comedy or the arts, or you know, through podcasts or anything, or, or even like writing. Um, I think yeah, just that, the creative community at large, isn't it? But I think it's it's more than the creative community. I think it's almost like a generational thing where it's just kind of like, oh, we don't have to have like nine to five jobs, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, specific, you know, it was like this sort of uh, self-employed sort of like boom, and um, but because of that, I think that you feel like you can never have a break, and I think it's um, I, I took a I took a year off doing stand-up uh, a year ago or maybe two years ago, uh, but I spent the whole time writing and just trying to get projects made, um, and so this is kind of like this enforced shutdown where everyone is kind of like been made to stop and when I took my year off stand-up I felt a tremendous amount of stress that the world was carrying on without me and so even though I was taking a break for myself it was still very stressful and what's happened here is because everyone is taking the same break it's kind of like um it feels like yeah there's it's kind of like uh, it's this universal thing that's happening where uh, we're all in the same boat and you don't feel like you're missing out on opportunities in the same way that you would do, let's say, if you took two months off just for yourself in a, a, you know, a normal year. I know um, what you mean, but I also think you might get that. I have that thing a bit where I don't want to feel like I wasted it or at the end of it go, oh, God, I could have done X, Y and Z in that time. And I, and I think I'm doing it quite sensibly. I, I do feel a bit like I'm, I've got certain things going on and I'm working on those but I am trying to be aware of it and sort of living in the moment of it. And yeah, but what I would say about that is that um, because because we've got this break, I'm no longer trying to keep up with everyone else by making decisions that I don't necessarily want to make. Okay, yeah. So like agreeing to do that bit of telly because they're paying me as opposed to because I want to do it. Or because now you want to keep your like, profile public, as it were. Yeah, and so I'm not making decisions based on that. So because I've had, like, I, I didn't really do much for the first month. I just sort of, like, focused on mental health stuff. And now that I'm back to working, I'm, what I'm finding is that the stuff I'm doing is stuff that I'm really passionate about and stuff that I really love. And it sort of helped me sort of, like, focus. Much like when, when you're talking about, like, uh, who are your friends and working out what it is that's important to yourself. I feel like the same thing is really happening with work, you know? where I'm now focusing on stuff that I, uh, yeah, that I really care about. Do you know what else I think is interesting as well is I think when you are a creative person, you're used to thinking outside of the box and almost thinking on your feet when it comes to generating work and income because you're not there at the end of the month being handed a paycheck. And actually, interestingly, I think that a situation like this actually forces creative people to be creative. And I come from a very kind of punk rock DIY background. That's very much what my podcast is about. That's how I approach almost everything that I do professionally. And, and you, I feel like this situation has given a lot of people, well, it's almost like a test, isn't it? It's like, if you can exist and survive in this situation, then you can, can you hear this drilling by the way? No. Good. Thank God. The only annoying thing about right, being at home, it's nice, it's writing, it's chill. 
my next door neighbor bought the house, gutted it completely. And he was previously only doing homework on, well, not homework, but whatever it's called, <laughs> housework on the weekends. But now he does it all day, all week. So it's just like, but if you can't hear it, that's good. Yeah, I just feel like this situation forces people to maybe redefine, you know, what they're doing and how they make a living. A bit of a test. So uh, earlier, Matt, when you were talking about transcribing, so you're transcribing it yourself. You're not doing that with an app or anything. You're going through the interviews and literally typing out what people are saying. I'm doing it manually, and I guess because of what Nick said earlier as well is I'm very much the same. I like complete creative control, and I didn't want to relinquish the duty over to you know a machine, an app, or a person and have them put punctuation in different places and present it in a way which wasn't quite to my taste. So I knew it would be a lot of work, but I also thought by doing it myself, not only will I make it my own in the way that I want it to be, but also it will ingrain in my brain as I go. So then when it comes to ordering all of these chapters in a way that makes sense, I know, oh, well, I spoke to this person about that as well, because I'll have, do you know what I mean? It's almost like the way you'd edit a movie. Sure. Stand up. Is there an argument then that with your interviewees, that you are doing that for them, that on, a, on an audio medium, you kind of understand the meaning of what they're saying, but they might not be saying that clearly, but you, it, as part of the conversation, you, you will understand what they're getting from it. But do you feel a responsibility then to make sure that the point they're making comes across as a written word rather than as a spoken conversation? Definitely, and also that they're going to come across as good because it's not my job to make anybody come across as bad. And so perhaps even if they made a point and they didn't do it in as good a way as they could, or they made a point which in hindsight perhaps doesn't stand up or reflects sort of badly on them, you know, that's just my way of choosing to approach it. But I've chosen to only present every single guest in a light that's positive, uh, you know, in a way that they sound intelligent and empathetic and objective. And, you know, I want people to read them and go check out all these people's work, not read it and go, well, that guy sounds like a jerk. Okay, because Nick has been on your podcast, so I'm thinking if you do another volume of the book, which is the UK end, were you planning on stitching him up with what he might be saying in the book at all? (laughs) So putting putting punctuation where he wouldn't want it and making him sound like he's saying something completely different than what he's saying. I don't like this, Nat. (laughs) I don't know, I just sort of, I just want to get it across. You, You want to get your point across, but I'm just thinking, Matt has control, doesn't he? He puts your interview in it. He has the control over what you're saying. He's saying, then Nick said this. discomfort in Nick's face right now. <laughs> not, enjoying this, not enjoying this angle that you're, uh, that, that, that you're going in at. And if you haven't thought of it, Matt, probably worth thinking about. Just you, It's just a possibility. You the whole new realm. <laughs> well, it's funny because I do, I do have to go through and email all the guests um, eventually. Not to get their permission... Um, because the, the interviews have been out there in the ether for, you know, in some cases, three years already. But I've been advised out of respect to ask for at least their blessing. So um, that will be a process that I will begin soon as well, once I've figured out exactly who's going in the book. But I think that is it, right? Because I think you can, by transcribing it, you are putting another layer between the audio recording and what a reader will read. That yeah. is going through your own filter. And you're also taking out the ums and the ahs and, you know, you're perhaps improving certain sentences so they read better. The, you know, because when you, you say a sentence, it can come across, but then if you read that sentence to the way it's said on the page, it will you know, sound grammatically incorrect. So, yeah, there's, a, there's certainly an element of subtle 
editing, but in a way that makes the original point, you know, come across as truthfully and authentically as possible. It's quite an interesting tightrope line to walk. I've quite actually been enjoying the process, surprisingly. You know, it's the like, um, very much like Twitter, where you can say something, someone could interpret it a certain way, and you go, I didn't mean that in the slightest. Exactly. Context is the key. And yeah, by the end of the transcription, I'll have done about 120,000 words. Wow. What was the dissertation? Like 10 to 12. Was it 10,000? That's fucking, fucking hell. Yeah, this is like a, a dozen of them. <laughs> but at least you're not making it up. Exactly, yeah, that's what somebody said to me, is at least, you know, it's not you writing 120,000 words of your own thoughts from scratch. But well, by the end of it, it will be like an amalgamation of the two things, won't it? Well, the way I'd like to kind of present it is it's the world's biggest table, and you've got all these guests sat around it, and then you drop, you know, a title card down on the table, and the chapter says, childhood. And then you're going around this table and getting everybody's thoughts in a way that, almost like a dialogue in a script, tells a story and makes sense and has a flow and has ebbs and troughs. And, and that's how I'd like each chapter self-contained to work. Yeah, we were talking a little bit like uh, how they wrote The Dirt. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. Exactly like that. So in some cases, yeah, people are remembering the same thing but differently as well. It's like Rashomon. You it is. The same thing from different angles. It is. <laughs> but more like The Dirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 more like the dirt i miss cinema how much do you miss going to the cinema god well I, i'm someone that goes you know i probably go once a week usually but i don't know if i i don't know right now if i want to go to the cinema like if they open tomorrow i don't know if i'd be in a massive rush to go i'd feel a bit like i would be a bit trepidatious to do anything that's the problem. That we're, that, that's the problem that we're in at the moment. It's just kind of like, yeah, you could open up a comedy club straight away. Yeah, open up a comedy club. Oh, oh, hang on, we've all got the all clear. Open up a comedy club, uh, but who wants to go? It's kind of like we've been we've been conditioned into fearing other people and uh, you know uh, um, practicing social distancing and all this stuff and so it's not something that we're just going to be able to psychologically just flip back to the way it was it's going to take time to do that so just because you open up um uh, venues doesn't mean that there's going to automatically be an audience of people that are rushing to do it so it's, it's a it's a longer it's a bigger problem than uh oh we've got permission to reopen now you know it's like a psychological thing it's mm. going to be it's, going to be, it's, oh, it's weird real weird um, it's but, a yeah, people's personalities I, as well, I think, this whole COVID thing. Like, uptight people, in, you know, people who are just naturally more uptight are a lot more uptight, you know, when you're queuing for the supermarket and they'll keep looking at you if you're, you know, an inch less than two metres edging towards them. They'll, like, give you the evil eye. And it, I think it's a very telling indication of the types of personalities of people as you walk around in the world and come across, you know... More easygoing types and then the more highly strong. I think partly that is how much people are getting out. Because I think I think up till a week or two ago, I realised that I really, like yourself, I hadn't really left the house apart from going to the supermarket I go to once a week. And apart from that, I'd be indoors. And I didn't really notice how much I was kind of... I, I sort of felt that, am I becoming a shut-in? Because I'd find it quite terrifying 
that now I'm sort of forcing myself to go out and I say, and I'm trying to go cycling and things just so I get out of the house and I interact a bit more. And I do feel happier and easier going just because of it. Whereas I think everyone's like doing it differently. So there are people that really aren't going out. And, and the more you go out, the less scary it seems in a way. But I think there's a lot of that as well, that people are at different, uh, people at different stages. People, a lot of people probably aren't ready. So with that, it's probably, you might be experiencing people that really haven't gone out that much or might be the first time they've gone out in two or three weeks or something. So it's, I mean, it's almost like everyone, it's actually quite good because it's, I almost feel like what you're being like, it's like everyone's being hyper-social because you're trying to read other people's, how they're feeling. And as I was saying, I've, I've just started cycling. The first time I've done it since I was about 10. And I find <laughs> that's really interesting as well because I'm a sort of pedestrian usually. And I feel that I'm so aware of like rules and not doing the wrong thing that again, it feels like it's a sort of a, a sort of social interaction you're having with other people on bikes or people crossing a road and pedestrians and, and motorists and things. I feel like it's, and, and when you're outside of that, just walking the streets, I'm aware of that too, that, that it, it's like a sort of overhang of riding a bike where you sort of feel that if someone's coming towards you, can I walk in the road? Can I keep my distance just for their sake and my sake? I quite like it. It's like a sort of, so it's like it's it's sort of sociable in the opposite way that you'd normally think of what being sociable is. It's not interacting. It's almost being sociable by avoiding people. <laughs> yeah, it's like a social experiment on a global scale, isn't it? Yeah. But then also there's people that it hasn't, uh, you know, psychologically hasn't affected them at all. And they're just like, going, oh, thank God we go to the beach. And then they've all gone to the beach. And then you go, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> and there's like some people, like like I think me and you, Nat, where we've kind of like stayed in and um, and now it's taking us kind of like um, a little bit of time to sort of like ease our way back into society. Yeah. And there's some people that have just been sort of like, if they have been um, uh, doing social distancing at all, and if they have been staying in, the moment they've had the opportunity to, they've been fucking off and getting straight out and getting in there. There was all those news footage. There was all that news footage of people on the beach with beers going, can't believe there's so many people out here drinking beer on the beach. It's disgusting. <laughs> go, yeah, like you, mate. <laughs> you know? it's crazy. It's crazy. But, you know, um, one of the things I like to do uh, when we have uh, guests on, especially people that are sort of like self self employed and self motivated, it's like, do you have any sort of um, maybe uh, advice to, for people that are starting out and that, especially under these circumstances, people that are starting out creating their own podcasts or anything like that? Uh, maybe people um, have got like a point of view that they're trying to get out there. Um, have you got any sort of like advice for people that are trying to start out in that industry? Yeah, I would say be prepared to have to fight and face hurdles and it's not going to be an easy road. You know, I've been doing it for 10 years and I only really feel like now a decade in things are finally starting to go my way. So I think it's the trade-off that you make that you get to do what you love, but that comes with a cost and the, the sacrifices are, you know, you're going to earn a lot less money than a lot of people your age. That's just the reality of, I think, working in a creative industry, especially when you're starting out. 
you're probably going to have to miss out on certain things, holidays, weddings, things like that, because you can't afford them. So I think if you go in already with this notion that it's going to be a fight and it's going to be a struggle, then you're then not setting yourself up for disappointment. Um, Because the reality of it is it is a hustle, it is a struggle, but if you love it, then it's worth it. Um, And also, I think just being open to be flexible and trying to be multifarious and multi-skilled and be as across the board as you can. Like, if you're interested in any way in cinema, I would say pick up a camera and start trying to use it. Learn how to edit, learn how to write. Like, I've found what's been really valuable for me is having all the skills across the board. Um, You know, perhaps you could focus on one and become the master of that, but I think it's actually better to be you know, an actor, a performer, a writer, a musician, a DJ, a cameraman, as many different skills as you can have, because then you're the guy that's got perhaps the edge on the other person going up for a role. Particularly with me, I bought a camera just before lockdown, so I was going to start getting into photography to shoot gigs because I DJ and go out and tour with bands. My next move was going to be, I'll go out, I'll DJ the shows, but I'll also take pictures of you guys as well, because nobody else is doing that. And then maybe we could record podcasts as well. So you kind of, you've got all these different things, whereas one person would maybe only have one of those. So I would say just like, especially now, whilst you've got the time, is just train, read, learn, uh, and make yourself as indispensable as possible. And then really, it kind of sounds gross, but it, a lot of it is who you know. And just being a sociable person and not being a networky, sleazy, schmoozy, horrible sycophant, but somebody who's just sociable and likable, and confident enough to, to ask sometimes, um, you know, could I do this? Could I come and shoot your gig? Or could I come and sit in on this? Or, and I think just having almost that cheekiness and that confidence, because people can only say no. Um, so you don't ask, you don't get. But there's certainly no secret, otherwise everybody would do it, right? You've just got to figure it out as you go mm-hmm. and, and hope that you can pay rent at the end of the month. <laughs> uh, no, I, I agree. Uh, some of the best things that I've ever I've ever done is because I took a chance and I just asked if I could do them. You know, when I directed my short film, I was just sort of... Um, uh, I, it wasn't offered as a directing thing. It was just sort of like, oh, I'm going to write this thing. And it was, it was, on, it, it was online. Um, and I said... No, that was uh, it. Was the Brighton one, the elephant that I filmed in Brighton with and, who, uh, who that, the lady in that with you, Esther Smith. Yes, um, who's been a guest on the show. Um, but that was like a thing where it was just like, uh, well, it's going to be online. And I said, well, if it's going to be online, can I direct it? He could have said no. Exactly. That, don't have to don't get right. And then, and, and also the sort of thing, it was just kind of like when I did my first hour in Edinburgh, it was just kind of like, I felt like I was ready. So I said, I want to do my first hour. And then I did it, you know. It's just one of those things where, you, you know, you make a decision and you stick by it. But also in lockdown, what I've also noticed is that I'm recording my own music now and I've taught myself how to edit stuff. And it's kind of like, there are all these things that I've never had time for because I've been in this rat race where I'm writing an hour of stand-up a year and I'm testing it out and I'm doing gigs in the evening and, and it's like I'm, I'm working at maximum capacity as, as far as I can cope with work and my mental health stuff. And now it's kind of like you go, right, well, that's gone away and I'm using this time to learn uh, new skills that are all, that all fold in to what I do. Yeah. So I'm more um, self-reliant where I don't have to rely on other people to do stuff for me because I can do them myself now. That's and the I other key that thing. If you can do it all yourself, then you don't have other people slowing you down. And it's important to be collaborative and it's important to be able to work with others in this industry. If you don't, you're not going to get far. But 
it's also a massive benefit, I think, to have all those skills yourself. And so you can do everything yourself and then there's no red tape, there's nothing slowing you down. You get an idea and then you can just materialize that idea because all the tools are right there to do it. And also don't be afraid to suck because everybody sucks at whatever they do for you know the first year, couple of years. And the more you do, the better you get. So you can't expect to be amazing at whatever you do just out the gate. And so I think it's about having that bravery and that vulnerability and that courage to just suck and be shit until you then get good and then you get better. People really only notice when you start getting good at stuff. You know, yeah. so you've got that you've got that time where you're sort of anonymous. Exactly. Yeah, get it all out, isn't it? Do as much shit as you can so nobody sees it, but you've got it out of yourself. <laughs> it's true. I mean, that's that's in stand up. That's what you do for years. You go out and be terrible for years, and you don't really notice because everyone else is as well. So everyone else is sort of at a similar level and it's only when people start getting good that you go, oh, it's actually a lot better now. It's just And how exciting is it when you can feel yourself getting better, not out of arrogance, but objectively you can just feel yourself improving. And that's a really exciting feeling. And I think then you know, this is what I want to do for life. You get that bug. I do think with a lot of people, I'm sure it's probably the case with you two. It's certainly true of me. I couldn't do anything else. Like I'm a, I'm a lifer in every sense of the word. And, you know, even if sometimes it's a struggle, both mentally, financially, whatever, I couldn't get, I couldn't go get a job. I just couldn't do that lifestyle. This is what works for me. This is what brings me joy and fulfillment and happiness. Even in the, the toughest of months, it's still the only way I'd want to live my life is pursuing this, this passion or these passions and these crafts. Because I think well, it is a job. And yeah, exactly. it's a yeah. job. That's your job. Yeah, you. I mean, I guess the show's called Fan Club, right? And I was chatting to your producer about the things that you talk about on the show. And I guess for me, the only things which I'm a fan of are things that I do for a living because I've tried to set my life up in that way that I get paid to do what I love as a hobby. And then therefore, perhaps don't have any hobbies because it's all work, but actually it is still a hobby. It's just I've been fortunate enough to get occasionally paid for it. I can't wait. Can't wait, good man, make, can't wait to make some money out of this. Great. <laughs> <laughs> when you started the podcast, how were you able to reach people and reach your guests to speak to? Well, thankfully, I'd done at that point five or six years in the industry. So I'd, I'd done a three-year, four-year stint on Kerrang Radio. I'd done a year stint on a station called Team Rock Radio. I'd presented on Scuzz TV and I'd written for Metal Hammer and Classic Rock Magazine. So I'd been in the industry about six years. I had an audience from various different mediums and I had all the right ins and connections with labels, management companies, publicists to get access to the guests. So actually, I've always said this from the start. From my point of view, getting guests has never been the problem. The problem for me has always been trying to fight through all the other podcasts that are out there because most other hosts of podcasts now are all household names. Most of them are comedians or presenters that are you know celebrities in their own right and a lot of the shows which I'm up against well not up against because it's not competition but what the ones that I'm trying to match or you know sit alongside I don't have the same star power if you will uh, as a lot of those other hosts so the struggle for me has been more about finding the audience but that's just been more of a slow gradual consistent build than an overnight kind of rocketing success but again, it's just having that confidence and that courage to just ask, oh, can I get old Alice Cooper on my podcast? No. Well, at least I asked. Maybe next time. 
So how did you get John Lydon then? What was the what was the secret there? John Lydon one came about through a guy called Tony Cook, who works for a company called Screen Promotions, and he's been a real benefactor and a mentor and a true friend to me throughout my career. And he was doing the the campaign for John's lyric book, um, which was a book he brought out three years ago, three and a half years ago, which contained every lyric that he'd ever written for Pistols and Pill. And he was doing the rounds, but not a lot. So he was doing basically like Good Morning Britain, like basically all the mainstream huge TV shows. And I think he had an hour in the afternoon between something free. And Tony called me and he said, how do you fancy doing John Lydon for your podcast? I've got him in his hotel. He'll have an hour's break. Do you want to come down and chat to him? And it was really just his belief in me and him going out, you know, on a whim for me and doing me that solid that, that brought that about. And then, as I said earlier, once you get someone like that, then it's like the dominoes fall. And they go, oh, well, if John Lydon's done it, Sean Ryder actually said to me in the podcast that I did with him, we're chatting about I'm a celebrity, get me out of the jungle. And he's like, the only reason I did that is because John did that. And he's like, it's good enough for John. It's good enough for me. That's why I'm doing this podcast. And he said <laughs> it in the podcast, like, this is why I'm doing yours, because John did it. And so it's almost like a seal of approval then. So I guess, yeah, whatever you're doing, if you get the one big guest, if you're a photographer or whatever you're doing, if you can get that one big guest, that will then open all kinds of other exciting And also, doors. they bring their own audience to your show, don't they? Exactly. Hopefully, you know, every time I get on a new guest, there's a, a tiny little island that then comes into the country and, you know, we're building the community as we go. And that's why I try and vary it up with the guests as well. So you're pulling in different people from different ends of the, the creative spectrum. Because someone like a Nick Helm, for instance, obviously there's a lot of rock fans that are going to be familiar with his work as well. So there's a lot of crossover there. Um, so you're drawing from all angles. Isn't Absolutely that right? No idea. no idea. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. Um, what's your favourite film, Matt? True Romance. God, great fucking movie! Yeah, my number one. Number one. Really? I adore it. It was the reason I smoked I... Nesterfield cigarettes for 20 years. Oh, really? Well, that's a, uh, that's a negative. Mm. Um, I, I read that before I watched it. I read the script before I saw the film. The bit when uh, Christopher Walken cuts open Dennis Hopper's hand is described so graphically in the screenplay that I was too scared to watch the film. And then when I saw it, it was sort of like, such an like, over and it's done. But in the script, I mean, it's a great I think script. That scene is the best scene in cinematic history for me. It's, it's, all, it's, it's almost real- Jacobean in its levels of tragedy and double crossing and drama and tension and. It's just a beautifully written scene with all the history of, I guess, Clarence and his father and the unresolved issues there. And Dennis Hopper knows this is his last chance to do right by his son. And he knows he's going to die. And then he goes into that whole speech about, you know, cantaloupes. So he's, so he's killed quickly, isn't it? So he doesn't actually have to... Exactly. And then he doesn't have to reveal tortured. anything. He won't be tortured. Since 1984. <sighs> it's just, yeah. That's number one with a bullet for me. Absolutely love that film. Great. Uh, Matt, thank you very much for coming on our show. You want to uh, play a game, Matt? Well, we're going to play a game, but we're going to. Uh, but after we play the game, we're going to finish the show. But we don't want you to don't leave the group, right? Because we need to we need to talk to you after to say thanks. Okay. But um, we're going to play a game now. You ready? I'm ready. Born ready. The I game is better or worse. And you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion. 
Okay, beginning with Samuel L. Jackson. But is David Bowie better or worse than Samuel L. Jackson? Better. 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 Matt. <laughs> David Bowie, better or worse than Samuel L. Jackson? Oh, I'm playing as well, am I? Sorry, I thought... You're, you're only playing. Is David Bowie better? Of course he is, yeah. Yeah, correct. Is James <laughs> Stewart better or worse than David Bowie? Worse. Worse? He is worse. He's a high guy. Patrick hell. Stewart, better or worse than James Stewart? Worse. It's, it's got to be one of those two, isn't it? There's no equals. There's no equals. Patrick Stewart is much worse than James Stewart. That's going to be worse. He's worse, yeah. Is Christopher Walken better or worse than Patrick Stewart? Better. It's definitely better. Better, yeah. Is Telly Savalas better or worse than Christopher Walken? Worse. He is worse. He's a high card. Is Peter Fox better or worse than Telly Savalas? Better. I've never heard of either. I'm going to go with Columbo's better. Columbo's better than Columbo. <laughs> What are you going to go with, Matt? I'm going to go with better as well. He is better. Peter Jackson, better or worse than Peter Falk? Worse. Better. Worse. Ah. Oh. Jeremy Irons, better or worse than Peter Jackson? Worse. Better. Worse. Oh. Ian McKellen, better or worse than Jeremy Irons? Better. 100%. Better. Paul McCartney, better or worse than Ian McKellen? Uh. Worse. I'm going to go worse. Ah, uh, better. Better than McKellen. You did really well there, Matt. You fell. Seven. Seven. Seven? Is that yeah. seven? Fucking hell. Right. Well, you scored seven. So uh, you're as good as Kevin Allison, Joe DeCosta, Alistair Green, Lloyd Griffiths, Max Harley, Harriet Kemsley, Kim Newman, Morgan McGlynn, Juliet Sear, The Last Skeptic, David Trent, Toby Williams, Mark Watson. But oh, I haven't got time to do this. Um, Matt, thank you so much for coming on our show. That was a really great chat. Indeed, thank you for giving up your time. Um, Nat, nice to sort of meet you. Hopefully we yes. can do this in person someday. Um, we're going we're gonna to play out now. With your with... song? Your song, which is? I thought I'd play a bit of Kiss to throw back to our concert together a few months ago, pre-lockdown. And uh, we both agreed that night this is perhaps their best song. It's certainly the most fun live. Um, I Was Made For Loving You by Nights in Service. Thanks very much. See you next week, guys. Bye.